When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our episode today comes from our most recent panel discussion titled Modern Money in Public Policy. Should we worry about the federal deficit? Our panel discussed the role debt plays within the economy and why it shouldn't be such a daunting subject. Do deficits really matter? Are they as poignant as they are made out to be? This talk explores how money works as a function within the economy. If you've ever wondered what the term modern monetary policy meant, this is definitely the podcast for you. Our talk is hosted by our Director of Education, Ibrahim Adrame, who is joined by James Keenan, Adam Rice, and Ryan Benicasa. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Uh, good evening, all. Uh, on behalf of the Learner Economy Society, uh, I'd like to extend a warm thank you to the Henry George School of Social Science for hosting us tonight. I'm very excited to discuss modern monetary theory, or MMT, and explore how understanding modern money can enable us to create a more prosperous future. Each of our talks will draw from Professor Randy Ray's latest book, Making Money Work for Us, How MMT Can Save America. Now, this title may come off as somewhat extreme. Uh, we, can blame that. we can blame that on Ray's publisher. Nevertheless, uh, we cannot solve the myriad social crises we face today without a better understanding of the tools we have at our disposal. Money is perhaps the most important and yet least understood tool we have. Our goal tonight is to try to change that and challenge you all to reconsider many preconceived notions you may have had regarding money. So what is money? Where does it come from? Ray explores this question at the beginning of the book. He leads off with his clear phrases that his mentor, Hyman Minsky, used to repeat during lectures. Everyone can create money. The problem is to get it accepted. And the need to pay taxes means that people work and produce in order to get that in which taxes can be paid. Right from the beginning, we see money is inextricably linked to taxation and therefore the state. In fact, as we'll see, money is directly tied to the desire of the state to resource itself. But I'm going to ahead of myself. Let's return to the fundamental question at hand. What is money? It's common for people to answer this question with some variation of money is what money does. Most people probably think of money as a tool they use to pay for things. Orthodox economists have agreed upon the following definition. Money is a medium of exchange, a store of value, and a unit of account. But these definitions are wholly unsatisfying. They fail to reach the core essence of what money actually is. We can't define money by its physical properties. 
because it comes in so many different forms. It could be a metal coin, a piece of paper, or a digital account entry at a bank. In 17th century England, wooden tally sticks functioned as money. In ancient Mesopotamia, some 4,000 years ago, money was recorded entries on clay tablets. I have paper dollar bills in my, pop, in, in my wallet, which read Federal Reserve note at the top, and below says this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. Therein lies a clue. Money is used to cancel debts, including debts owed to the public. As Ray points out, the American colonies issued their own form of paper money to pay for real resources for the public. Perhaps they wanted to build a school or a courthouse. Often referred to as bills of credit, the local governments would spend the newly issued money and simultaneously impose taxes to be paid in those bills. These so-called redemption taxes were paid at predetermined dates by returning the paper bills to the tax authorities and were subsequently burned. The redemption of these debts prompted some colonies to throw festivals in celebration. The order of operations here is critical. Colonial authorities spent the money first, then taxed it back. The colonists who, who owed taxes in that money had no way of, accumul of accumulating it other than directly from the authorities or indirectly through private transactions, which usually requires some sort of exchange of real resources. Thus, the bill circulated as money, much to the surprise of the so-called father of modern economics, Adam Smith. There's a reason we file a tax return every year, even though many of us don't get returned any money. Uh, and that is that the dollars are being returned to their original issuer. The United States government. That is one of the critical insights of MMT. It is the only school of economic thought that recognizes the state as the original source of money for an economy. So what is money? Money in its most distilled form is information, a record of debts and credits, of IOUs and UOMEs. By creating money, the state can use it as a social organization tool to accumulate the real resources it needs to serve the public purpose, such as schools, hospitals, infrastructure, and defense. Or as Ray writes in the opening section of chapter two, money is and always has been a state money, a creation of the authorities who choose a money of account and impose obligations to drive the currency. In the United States, we have institutions that give the impression that money comes from the private sector, that banks and prudent savers lend money to the government when they buy debt securities issued by the US Treasury. Rather than calling it the public's money, we refer to it as taxpayer money, as if those who are net payers of taxes have some sort of legal priority claim over the nation's output. In reality, it is the other way around. Money comes from the government and the private sector needs the government's money in order to pay taxes, fees, and fines that the government imposes. A simple exercise in logic reveals this to be true. You cannot pay taxes in US dollars or buy a US treasury security unless you have dollars in the first place. Accountants use the terms sources and uses of funds to organize entries on a financial statement. Paying taxes and buying US treasury securities are ostensibly uses of funds, 
Therefore, the government must be the original source of funds. So how does money enter the economy? Ray describes two channels, governments and the commercial banking system. The government creates money when Congress approves a spending bill and the president signs it into law. The Federal Reserve was created by Congress and serves as fiscal agent for the U.S. government. The Fed sits between the government and the commercial banks and dutifully credits the recipient's bank accounts when the government purchases a good or service. The Fed also lends money, called reserves, to the banking system to ensure there are sufficient funds for banks to meet depositors' withdrawal demands, as we just experienced with the new bank term funding program following the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Commercial banks exchange reserves, which are merely keystroke entries on the Fed's and the bank's balance sheet between themselves as a means of clearing payments. And when banks make loans, they simultaneously create deposits, which are essentially claims on the bank's reserves. This leveraged financial structure is the engine that drives our capitalist economy. When the government spends more than it collects back in taxes, we refer to this as a deficit. The term deficit is misleading because it implies that the government can run out of its own money. Such an idea is absurd. The government cannot run out of its own promises. What it can run out of is real resources. Those are the real deficits that we should care about. So why does the treasury issue debt securities if the government can just pay for things by crediting bank accounts? Treasuries are, are a tool for monetary policy. The Fed sets interest rates by buying and selling treasuries, in effect destroying or creating reserves in the process. And selling treasuries results in a positive balance in the treasury's general account to Fed. This complicated design is intentional to give the public the impression that banks are lending to the government. This overly complicated structure is unnecessary. Ray points out in his book that in the FAQ section of the Fed's operating manual used by its staff, there is a question posed. What do we do if we receive a treasury check, but the treasury's deposit has already dropped to zero? Answer, clear the check and enter a negative number. This is an overdraft. What this shows is that there is no financial limit to how much money the government can spend in its own unit of account. In closing, I'd like to leave the audience with a question to consider. If money was no object, what would you do in order to benefit the public good? Thank you. Thank you very much, Ryan. Our next speaker is Adam Rice. All right. Hello, everybody. Uh, before I get started, I'd like to thank you all for coming tonight and those of you attending on Zoom. And also thank you, Ibrahima, for having us back. $100 bill is a $100 tax credit. The bill in my wallet allows me to cancel $100 worth of tax liabilities imposed on me by the US government. Until that tax liability is canceled by a payment, the bill sits in my wallet as my asset and the government's liability. Of course, I could also give my friend Jim the $100 bill, in which case it becomes his asset. In any event, the $100 remains the holder's asset and the government's liability until the bill is extinguished by canceling the tax liability. I offer these two examples because it is important to recognize that monetary assets and liabilities must always balance. This is the nature of accounting. 
In both of the scenarios I just mentioned, I had a $100 monetary asset on my personal balance sheet. My counterparties, Amazon and the US government, correspondingly had $100 liabilities on their balance sheets. The US government and Amazon both owed me $100. My $100 gift card and my $100 bill were $100 claims on Amazon and the US government. Assets and liabilities always balanced. Similarly, for every deficit, there's an equal surplus and vice versa. For simplicity's sake, I want you all in the audience to imagine that there are two sectors in the US economy, the government sector and the private sector. All of us in this room are in the private sector in this example. In a given time period, the US government decides to spend a certain amount of money on goods and services by way of the budgeting process. Maybe it wants to hire a few of us as police officers, a couple of soldiers, a few teachers, and it also wants us to build an airplane for it. In exchange for our time and effort, the government rewards us with US dollars. Again, for simplicity's sake, let's imagine that the government pays us collectively $1,000 for our hard work. It then collects $500 in taxes back from us. The $500 difference between what the government has spent and what it has collected back in taxes is known as the government's budget deficit. It's called a deficit because the government has spent more than its income. However, that $500 now sits in our collective pockets as the non-government sector. The government's $500 deficit is everyone in this room's $500 surplus down to the penny. In order for the non-government sector, so us in this example, to accumulate surpluses of dollars, the government must spend more dollars than it collects in taxes. It must run deficits. In his book, Ray notes that federal government surpluses are often celebrated by the politicians and economic commentators as adding to the nation's savings. But this ignores that by definition, the non-government sector must go into deficit in order for the government to run a surplus. Unfortunately, the notion that deficits and surpluses must balance is often ignored when it comes to commentary in the mainstream media and in policymaking. We rarely ever hear about the government's annual budget deficit contributing to the non-government sector savings. Instead, the government deficit often has a negative connotation. We're told that the government is spending irresponsibly. We're told that the government is running out of money. We're told that the government is the government spending is reckless and it's running up a credit card bill that it eventually has to be paid back, maybe even by our children or grandchildren. From Randall Ray's point of view, it's government surpluses that represent the real danger. By definition, when the government runs a surplus, it is removing more dollars from the non-government sector than it has previously spent. This causes the non-government sector, us, to go into deficit. And what happens when we spend more than our income? We borrow to make up the shortfall. Unfortunately, we are not currency issuers. It is illegal for us to create dollars. We can't issue currency like the US government does. So we must find other ways to meet our savings and spending desires. Modern monetary theory recognizes that the real dangers of government surpluses often manifest as the widely imagined dangers of government deficits. When the non-government sector is short of the US dollars it needs to thrive, we run into a whole host of problems. Households and businesses may be forced to borrow and accumulate debts that they simply can't pay back. With, an, with inadequate government deficits, we can expect an over-reliance on private sources of credit like bank lending, leading to imbalances of power within the economy. 
With less money circulating in the economy, consumers may pull back on spending, meaning less overall consumption and investment, leading to unemployment and poverty. In order for us to have a thriving economy with low unemployment, high and rising incomes, adequate health care, retirement and welfare benefits, and sustainable levels of private debt, the government must run deficits that are sufficiently large to meet the non-government's the non-government sector's desire to save. Randy Ray notes, most Americans know of the Great Depression of the 1930s, but they do not know that that was our sixth depression. And they are not fully aware of the association of the growth of the federal budget from 3% of GDP in 1929 to an average of about 25% of GDP after World War II, with the complete absence of depressions since the Great Depression. The rise of big government in the US has been called a golden era of US capitalism and made and made up most of the second half of the century. This period of rapid spending growth resulted in extended periods of economic stability, major productivity growth, full employment, and rising incomes. Government spending is ultimately what determines the non-government sector's income. As the monopoly issuer of the US dollar, the government has a massive role to play in terms of fostering a rising tide that lifts all boats. In the words of Ray, Neither the U.S. government budget deficit nor the U.S. trade deficit represents a dangerous, dangerous imbalance. They are balanced to the penny. The government's deficit allows the private sector to save, and saving is in the safest, <clears throat> safest asset on planet Earth, claims on the U.S. government. It is no coincidence that we witnessed political uprisings around the world in the period after the global financial crisis. Movements like Occupy Wall Street, Make America Great Again, Brexit, and others were at least in part the result of the world's governments not conducting fiscal policy for public purpose. We saw major buildups in private debt leading up to the financial crisis, and afterwards the government did not do enough to restore economic balance. Instead of pursuing full employment, governments pursued spending cuts in the name of fiscal responsibility. The words deficit and debt became political swear words. Policymakers seem to forget the definitional balance between assets and liabilities, deficits and surpluses. As a result, weak public policy responses led to a long and painful recovery for the world economy. We saw stagnant growth and prolonged periods of elevated unemployment. It is no surprise that people of all different stripes were outraged by the system. As Stephanie Kelton says, another MMP economist, we have to ensure the government balances the economy, not the budget. Equipped with an MMT lens, we need to democratically pursue public policy that achieves a balanced economy. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Adam. Uh, Jim? Before beginning, I'd like to thank uh, Ibrahima and Kuba of the Henry George School for inviting us here tonight and assisting with the audiovisual, uh, which uh, hopefully is reaching uh, many more people on the internet. In the last two chapters of Making Money Work for Us, Randy Ray asked, what MMT-informed macroeconomic policy in the United States would look like? But before he gets to that, he emphasizes the need for a paradigm shift in the way money, federal spending, and debt are discussed in the US. Ray follows linguist George Lakoff in arguing that we only see facts through a framework. Most economic policy discussions in the US 
whether at the elite level or at the everyday level, start from a conservative framing, a framing in which debt is viewed as fundamentally immoral. Once evoked, Ray argues, the conservative frames cannot be overcome. When progressives start from a conservative framing, he says, they lose. Hence, we need to reframe the discussion. Ray argues that we need to capture the moral high ground. Quote, policy is always and everywhere a moral issue, not merely an economic issue, and certainly not merely a technical issue, end of quote. Ray offers as a meme the title of a song called We Take Care of Our Own from Bruce Springsteen's, Springsteen's 2012 album Wrecking Ball. Ray extends Springsteen's lyric with points like these. We don't let old folks sleep on the street. We take care of our own. We don't let children go hungry. We take care of our own. We pay taxes to keep our currency strong. We need a good government to help us take care of our own. Our government can always afford to take care of itself. We've got the technology to take care of our own. We've got the resources to take care of our own. All that is missing is the political will. We need democracy to quicken the will of our policymakers. While we are resource constrained and politically constrained, they argue, we are not financially constrained. Once we understand that, we are in a position to have a more rational discussion of government spending and natural policy in general. I'd like now to highlight some possibilities for an MMT-informed politics in the United States. Some of these possibilities are explicitly discussed by Ray in the final chapter in Making Money Work For Us. Some derive from the work of other MMT scholars, including Stephanie Kelton, Warren Mosler, Bill Mitchell, and Pavlina Cherneva. And some are our own contributions. An MMT informed politics in the US would entail changes in federal laws, policies, and procedures. And we can place these changes into three buckets. The first bucket holds things that are relatively small and wonky and pertain to the congressional budget process. The second budget holds things that are much bigger and which clean up messes which Congress and various presidents have gotten themselves and us into during the past 90 years. The third bucket holds things that are really big and to deliver real progress for the people of the United States. Bucket one, the congressional budget process. The congressional budget process needs reform. If you've read Stephanie Kelton's book, The Deficit Myth, you'll be familiar with two of these reforms already. First, we need to get rid of PAYGO, that's P-A-Y-G-O. PAYGO is the law that says that for the sake of bowing down to the deficit myths, any new increase in federal spending or reduction in taxes has to be balanced by reductions in spending on existing programs, the so-called pay-fors. In her book, Helen describes how everybody in Washington knows that the pay-fors are a big joke. 
they always give way for anything being immersed or suspended. But then in the meantime, they're just a way for both Republicans and Democrats to avoid spending on the needs of working class people. Second, we need to change the way the Congressional Budget Office evaluates the economic impact of proposed, proposed legislation. Stephanie Kelton discusses this in her book as well. Currently, that office, known as the CBO, is tasked with evaluating how much impact on the federal deficit a bill will have over a 10-year period. Congress then goes through all kinds of song and dance with pay-fors to try to get a good CBO score on the legislation, with the definition of good depending on which side of the proposed legislation you're on. Kelton argues that the CDO should instead focus on whether the U.S. economy has the real resources needed to implement a particular spending proposal without putting upward pressure on prices. Bucket two, get us out of our self-imposed measures. The second bucket holds Congress holds changes in law, which will get us out of the messes, messes which the executive and legislative branches of the federal government have gotten us into over the last 90 years. We've gotten into these messes because we are enthralled with the notion that debt is immoral by definition, leading our elected officials to feel the need to worship at the altar of so-called sound finance. First, abolish the federal debt limit. We have to abolish the federal debt limit Every couple of years, Congress plays this charade where one party threatens to stop paying the government's bills for programs for which Congress has already appropriated funding. Modern money theory shows us that as a monetarily sovereign nation, the United States can never involuntarily default on its obligations. So why should we allow our politicians to threaten voluntary default on those obligations. Two, we guarantee Social Security and Medicare payments. We need to guarantee that Social Security and Medicare payments will have legal authority, that Social Security and Medicare will have legal authority to pay benefits regardless of the financial status of the four trust funds, which nominally fund those two benefit programs. Every couple of years, some politicians and economists project that these funds will run out of money at some future time, and that to avoid that calamity, we need to cut benefits now. But once again, if you've read Stephanie Kelton's The Deficit Myth, you'll understand that these trust funds are not some eternal, unchangeable construct. The two Social Security trust funds were created as part of Franklin D. Roosevelt's strategy to build support for the program back in 1935. As he put it, he didn't want any damn politician to be able to threaten Social Security's funding. In the 1960s, Lyndon Johnson structured Medicare somewhat similarly. But now, the legal language surrounding the trust funds invites politicians to try to undermine Social Security and Medicare. Let's get rid of the fear-mongering about the trust funds and start focusing on making sure we have the real resources needed to maintain retirement income and healthcare financing for the people of the United States. 
Third, while modern money theory shows that a monetarily sovereign government, like the US federal government, does not need to amass funds via taxation before it can spend in pursuit of the public purpose, MMT does stress the necessity of a well-functioning tax system to serve taxation's other functions. Taxation drives demand for the currency. Taxation helps to guarantee that money spent into the economy by the government returns to the government and does not put upward pressure on prices. Taxation is one of the few things that puts a break on dependency in a capitalist economy for the rich to always get richer. We need a well-functioning taxation system. Therefore, we need a well-funded internal revenue service. Now to the third bucket, positive programs, one new, one old. So far, we've been talking about changes in law and policy, whose main effect will be to reduce the ability of politicians to play games with the well-being of the people of the United States. Think of this as a political harm reduction program. An MMT-informed politics, however, must also put forward a positive program of social change. Let's consider two such programs, one new, one old. The new program is, of course, the federal job guarantee. As a currency issuing level of government, the US federal government is in a position to offer a job to any unemployed person at a fixed wage with benefits and to put that person to work in pursuit of the public purpose. The job guarantee program can thus eliminate involuntary unemployment, while the job guarantee wage helps anchor the value of the currency. Randy Ray discusses the job guarantee in Making Money Work for Us and his earlier books. Stephanie Kelton discusses the job guarantee in The Deficit Myth, as does Pavlina Terneva in her book, The Case for the Job Guarantee which, like Ray's current book, is published by Polity Press. So I'm not going to go into detail about it right now. For those of you who are here in the hall this evening, I have copies available to show you. The old program is one devised 50 years ago by that notorious leftist, Richard M. Nixon. The program is federal revenue sharing with the governments of the 50 states. MMT stresses that while the federal government as a currency issuer is not financially constrained, though it is resource constrained and politically constrained, state governments are not currency issuers. They are currency users, just as households and businesses are, and they are financially constrained. They must amass funds before they can spend in pursuit of the public purpose. Sharing federal revenue with the states on a per capita basis will help mitigate these financial constraints on state governments. And because every state will benefit, this will build support for the kind of politics which is MMT informed. Let's now recap these aspects of an MMT informed politics, this time in descending order of scope. One, the federal job guarantee. Two, federal revenue sharing with the states. Three, guarantee social security and Medicare payments. Four, fully fund the IRS. Five, abolish the federal debt limit. Six, 
redirect the Congressional Budget Office to focus on real resource availability, and seven, get rid of PAYGO. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Jim. Uh, now we're gonna dive a little bit away from America and talk about the safer zone. So what's the deal with the safer zone? So I know it's an acronym that we are all familiar with. Uh, uh, chartered Financial Analyst, I think, but the safer does stand in uh, the part of the world where it's used as initially in 1945, when it was set up, France des colonies Françaises d'Afrique. So if you translate that into English, it would be the France for French colonies in Africa. So after independence in the uh, 1960s, it was changed into Communauté Financière d'Afrique, uh, Financial Community of Africa. So this is a currency area regrouping 14 African nations of Western Central Africa that all have in common uh, the, their being a form of colonies of France. So the CEFA is today considered as one of those undying relics of the so-called France-Afrique, which refers to the very special relationship that France had, uh, still has with its colonies. So it was established in 1945, uh, about, uh, about around the same time as the Bretton Woods Accords, because French ratified the Bretton Woods Accords on December 26 of 1945. So the idea here was to give France cheaper access to raw materials from its colonies. And at the same time, because we just got out of World War II, WTO, uh, before it was WTO was called the GATT, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs wasn't in effect but negotiation was still going on. So protectionism was still lurking in the background. So France wanted to make sure it has access to a wider consumer market outside of France. And the colonies were just you know, uh, ready for that. So that was a good way for France to create the conditions for it to reindustrialize after the war. So uh, the currency did survive independence and it still exists until today. There is, uh, two years ago, there was some discussion on how to change it to integrate all the African nations that are necessarily French speaking, but the structure is still the same. So uh, this is gonna be a very brief intro into what the CFA is. So we are not going to uh, dwell to dive deeply into it. So it's just gonna be something very uh, brief, but the point here is to show what a sovereign currency would mean in a developing country and why or how adopting an MMT framework can help uh, reshape things and hopefully help those countries pull out of the situation where they are. So the CEFA basically has four pillars. Uh, first of all, it used to be back to the French franc, but we don't have French francs since uh, the, 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 uh, the European Union also became a financial union. And now it is connected to the euro. So one euro would uh, be equivalent to about, I think, 655 CFA francs. The second pillar is guaranteed convertibility. What that means is all the CFAs that are around the world circulating, uh, they can be converted 
directly into euros and France would guarantee that facility. Now there is a flip side to that facility, which is those African countries, everything that they earn in terms of hard currencies, dollar, yen, yuan, or anything else that is not uh, from that era, or euros, of course, because France is not the only country using that currency. Uh, they should be stored in what you call a compte d'opération. It's an account, special account, that is managed by the French treasury. It used to be 100 person until the 1970s because you know there was a lot of uh, uh, backlash on it. Uh, today, it's 50%. So let's say I'm from Senegal. I'm a, a, an exporter. I export to China. I get paid in yuan. I can have everything I earn from that trade to Senegal. I'll have to give half of that into the, uh, how do I call it, to put it in the condeparation that is managed by the French uh, uh, treasury, okay? So, and basically that's a pool. So it's true for all countries. Now, uh, that is basically uh, a way for France to offset countries that are in a situation of deficit with countries that are in a situation of uh, positive trade balance. Let's say Cote d'Ivoire exports a lot of cocoa and coffee. They usually have a surplus, but you have a country like uh, Senegal that usually have a trade deficit. So if Cote d'Ivoire has a surplus, so it will be used to wipe out. That's how it used to work. Now, what happens when all else fail? Let's say there is a, a draft, there is a problem, and Cote d'Ivoire, which used to help other countries, is not in a, in a, in a position to uh, 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 trigger the solidarity mechanism, the rule is the contract, the, the treaty says France should intervene. The problem is France never does it. Whenever it comes to doing that, they don't. They would either force a devaluation or call in the IMF that will call for uh, austerity. So I will get into that in more details. And the other pillar is what you call, what, what is known as the free movement of capital. Free movement of capital is basically there are no capital controls. So foreign investors could come and settle in one of those countries. Uh, whatever they make, they could take it back and there is no problem. And they also have, because of the pegging system, there, are, there is no inflation risk because it's set, there is a direct relationship between one CFA and one euro. Okay, so we will get into those in details. Let's start with the number one, the peg to the euro. I'm being told to uh, put on my camera. Sorry. Okay, yeah. So the peg basically means there is a fixed exchange rate between the euro and the CFA. So the value of the CFA is linked to the euro. So anything that happens, to the euro immediately affects the CFA. And of course, anything that the European Central Bank in terms of monetary policy does to the euro immediately impact the CFA. Now, you may wanna ask, because knowing that the euro is a kind of highly overvalued currency when you compare it to a developing country like Senegal, uh, you may ask why would a country want to connect its currency to a, a currency that is so overvalued? Now, the argument, the standard argument that is given is it provides price stability, it, it is, which makes it a hedge against inflation, but it is also a way of attracting 
foreign direct investment. So investors would feel comfortable because they know they are not losing in foreign exchange. So they will see it as a good reason to go and invest in the country, okay? Now, the problem is those benefits are debatable if you look at the evidence. But one thing is sure, we all know about the drawbacks. They are so obvious. Number one is the loss of competitivity in foreign markets. If you have an overvalued currency, the flip side of it is your stuff that you produce is gonna be expensive. So that's basically it acts without being called so an export tax, okay? Now, there are situations where this is not true. Germany is one example. The mark used to be very high. Uh, the Euro also, Germany uses that currency, is kind of overvalued. And yet Germany's export sector does very well. So Germany is an exception to the rule because they don't compete on price, they compete on quality. So they are able to uh, deal better with uh, outsourcing than most countries because of that reason. Okay, the second one is because of uh, having a very high currency, uh, local producers don't see the point of producing. So they all become merchants because your currency is expensive. So whatever you wanna get in China or Vietnam is gonna be cheap. So we in Africa feel like uh, it's easier to go buy stuff from China, pay custom duties or Vietnam and sell to the locals. So basically what we do, we turn ourselves into because of the high currency that we have into an export market for the, for the rest of the world. We support the industrialization of others, okay? Which that's what I call the structural biases in the economy, which basically reduce us into producing raw materials and uh, having an, extra, an attractive sector and uh, subsistence farming. So, and it also creates another stress because it pushes monetary uh, policy authorities uh, to comply with the rate decisions of the anchor currency, which is the Euro. And uh, because if they don't keep the rates high, there will be a capital flight. People won't see the need. They would rather take the money where it pays better. And uh, that's a, a problem. And that's the reason why we have uh, excess liquidity, liquidity in African banks. I'm from Senegal, so I know Senegal. Since I was uh, going to university, we used to hear when the economics teachers come and talk to us, they always mention this, the banks are full of liquidity. So you have a situation where there is excess liquidity, but businesses are striped of credit. They can't, they can't uh, have access to credit. So that's another problem. So the conclusion for that would be the assumed benefits, stable exchange rate, more inbound FDI, they are not worth the drawbacks. So evidence suggests actually that it is not having a stable currency or a stable exchange rate that attracts FDI. It is high GDP, the existence of strategic natural resources uh, and other, other consideration. That's the reason why countries like Ghana and Nigeria and uh, other West African countries are not French speaking, do better on that front than the safer zone, okay? Uh, another element, here is the guaranteed convertibility. I already mentioned that during the introductory talk. Uh, whenever it has to come into effect, instead of having France step in, uh, we got devaluation or austerity. So basically that's another touted benefit that we didn't see materialize. The other one is also 
quite connected to the convertibility, you know, service that France was supposed to offer is the obligation to keep 50% of your export revenues in France. So people are asking, should we really do that? Because the only reason why you would justify it is for to cover the risks. But whenever the risk materializes, the guarantee is not played. So there is a big debate actually going on right now on that. And in the new framework, France is uh, considering giving up. Now the question is, where is that those reserves gonna be kept? And by the way, those 50%, if one of the countries need to borrow money, they pay a very high interest rate on it. Uh, the free movement of capital, this is an important one because the stated goal is by offering that layer of security to investors, you will entice them to come and invest, okay? And of course, it implies the removal of all capital controls. Remember, I was in 1995 in, uh, in Asia when the Asian financial crisis hit. Uh, one of the reasons why it uh, spread like wildfire, except a few countries like South Korea, and they absorbed the shock better than other countries like Malaysia or Indonesia, they didn't have capital controls. So they allow short-term capital to flow in. And when the economy started showing signs of uh, uncertainty, it all went. So it created a crisis that they were not expecting. And after that, those countries, Malaysia started by uh, putting uh, in place some capital controls and so on. So in the safer zone, you don't have it. And uh, it leads to some serious financial bleeding. Uh, a good example I could give is the case of Congo. I'm not talking of the DRC because there are two Congo. I'm talking of Congo Brazzaville. DRC was a former Belgian colony. So Congo loses every year the equivalent of 43% of, of its GDP going out. Now that's, that's a lot, okay? That's another example. So uh, now the question is, would sovereign money make a difference in this contest? And how can an MMT inspired framework help? So basically, uh, I think uh, the speakers who spoke before me already uh, explain the details of what the MMT framework is about. So I'm gonna bring up a couple of them here. So the idea is you call a monetary sovereign when a country can issue its own currency. An example would be the United States federal government. The city of the state of New York is not sovereign because it doesn't have its own currency. Okay. Russia would be a sovereign country, a sovereign have a sovereign currency that has something called the ruble. The Chinese would be the Japanese. Uh, because they have something called the yen. Uh, but France, for example, would not be, at least after they got into the euro, before they were during the time of the franc. So those are examples. The second requirement would be tax in that currency. That's important because that tax on the currency creates the demand for the currency. And it also makes sure that the currency is accepted. Like I think High Minsky said it, uh, Everybody can have their currency. The problem is how to get it accepted. Well, taxing it, using it, uh, taxing on that currency is one way to make sure everybody would accept your currency. So, and of course, another important element here in the MMT toolkit, avoid borrowing uh, in a foreign currency. Because if you borrow in a foreign currency, you don't have the printing presses for that currency. So if you have a situation where you have to pay that money, you don't have an export sector that bring you that money, you're gonna be 
borrowing from outside in order to pay for what you have. So that's a, another element. But is that enough? Because it's easy to say, I want to have my currency, but uh, that currency can only work in that country. Let's say I'm in Senegal. I have my sovereign currency, but I need uh, some capital goods. Let's say I want to build a factory to uh, uh, produce gasoline, for example. We don't have the technology domestically, and we don't have it in any of the countries that use the SEFA, but we are a sovereign country, sovereign, uh, uh, we have a sovereign currency. Mm -hmm. So in that case, nobody is going to accept my SEFA unless there is something valuable in my country that they would be willing to take it. But chances are they will take dollars or euros, right? So that means you will have to borrow. So having a sovereign currency is meaningless in that case. So that's why uh, Jim insisted, I think uh, all the two speakers that uh, spoke before him also insisted, the issue should be on the real resources. You need to have a, a domestic production capacity. So before you jump into uh, getting a sovereign uh, currency as an icon of sovereignty, the Romans have a word for it. They call it the Yuscudenda monetas. That means the right to beat your own currency, to have your own currency. Okay, it's one of the key elements of sovereignty. Just as important as having a population, having a territory, having a government, having a flag. It's just as important. But you must create the real condition on the ground for it to have any meaning. And I think that's one of the challenges. So I used to discuss with my fellow Africans, everybody's saying, let's have it, let's have it. I said, fine, it's good, but we need to understand there are some requisite on prerequisite on the real economy that must follow any adoption of a currency. Otherwise you'll have problem. And by the way, the poorest countries in Africa have their own currencies. And I think that's a cautionary tale for us. Thank you very much. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.